Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. Then Moses said to God, but I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am, I am has sent me to you. But God has also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. One of the uh, really joyful tasks of being human is that we've been given this privilege to bump around the world and name all kind of things, you know, the animals and the colors. And how about this room right here? I'm looking around and um, there, there are probably a hundred, maybe a thousand things in this room that um, we've given a name to. Uh, candles and pulpit and pew and cross and font and uh, coat and organ and guitar. Um, and, you know, th that kind of works, doesn't it? Um, it, it's, I think the philosopher Rory, Rorty said, uh, all languages are um, tools to deal with what's around us. And there's a lot of things around us. And it helps us to categorize and to classify and find our way around. Uh, it helps me to know the name store. I know, okay, that's where I shop. You put the name hardware in front of that. I know, oh, that might be where I'll find a ball peen hammer or a wing nut. Different names for different things that helps us clarify and categorize um, and comprehend. But we have to admit there are some names, well, they don't even close, come close to telling all there is about something. Like the name Sky. Okay, a little child looks out the window and says, 
what's that? And you look out the window and see they're just looking up into a great blue expanse, and you say, well, that's just sky. Well, there it is. You've labeled it, and you've named it, and you've reduced it to a word. In a way, you have diminished it. It's just sky. Um, no, that's just your conception of it and your word for it. S-K-Y. That's just a sound we make with our mouth. Um, that's just a scratch we put on paper. That's not sky. It's fathom upon fathom of deep or whatever it is without form or substance. It's um, just swarming with light, the mystery and the uni uh, mystery and depth of the universe. Just sky? No, it's much more than a name. Now, in saying that, I'm not suggesting we stop naming things, or as Ann was saying this morning, that we stop naming persons or children. That's one of the joys I had as a parent. Sarah and I had. We have the opportunity to name three children. We reached back some ways into family history, but we also reached into some of our own just thinking about what name would be pleasant um, for one of our children to grow into. Yeah, names have meaning. But also, names are kind of useful. Having three children, I was glad that they had different names. So when all of a sudden the uh, channel changer was missing, I knew where it probably was. It was probably in child number three, named Matthew. It was in his little red flyer wagon. And so when the channel changer went missing, I didn't have to hold a family cancel council. I'd just say, Matthew, Matthew, and maybe after the third time he would respond. Names say they work. But we also have to admit, admit the person we know by name. It's much more than that label. Now, every once in a while, I've been in a relationship with someone, and I used to get the feeling that once they thought they mastered my name, they mastered me. In other words, my name was about all they needed and really wanted to know. But I hope we, we see things differently than that. Every person. Every person has a certain interiority, an interiority that just can never be reached or known. It's kind of amazing. We're these strange, exotic cocktails of dust and quarks and blood and soul and all that cannot be named, containing infinite depth and dimension. The theologian John Caputo said, in relationships with other people whose name we know, we set out to a shore we never fully reach, a shore we never reach. Now, if that's true about sky, if that's true about us, how much more so is it true about God, the name above all names? Oh, but we have, we have some names for God in our Western tradition, names like Jehovah, Lord, Allah, and these names are useful. They help us to know the subject that we're talking about. What did you talk about in Sunday school today? Oh, it, it, it was just God. Be careful with that. Um, I don't know anyone that's ever walked all the way around God and then comes back and says, I've got some pictures to show you. Someone said this, I'm not sure who it was, but it goes like this. Perhaps God is the name given, given that we give, for that we know not what, for that which we deeply desire and so hungry to find. That shore we never fully reach. 
this story this morning from Moses, it's about names, about one name, about the name of God. So Moses, he's bumping around the back 40 of his uh, father-in-law's ranch. And there he um, confronts this burning bush, and Moses has the audacity to ask God, well, tell me the name you want to go by. After all, God had kind of just nudged him to be this liberator of life. And Moses said, I, I need to know what kind of name uh, I, I, sh I should use in speaking to others, and I, I want to know how to get, keep in touch with you. And God answered. God answered not with a proper name. God said his name is Y-H-W-H. Yeah, really, really. See, in, in the original Hebrew text, there, there were no vowels. There were only consonants. And so that's what we have here. And how do you pronounce that? The, the best guess is Yahweh, something like that. We know this, uh, Y-H-W-H. It's derived from the verb to be. So it goes something like this. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. As someone has said, in other words, God says, I have no proper name. I escape your names. I escape your categories. I escape all your boxes. I escape your limitations and your conceptions. I am who I am. I am who I am. Maybe that's why Augustine says, it was rather famously he said this, if you fully comprehend it, it is not God. Or, or this is why we pray with Meister Eichhardt, the, um, the mystic, who prayed, God, rid me of God. In other words, rid me of the God of my limited, idolic conceptions. Do you know to this day, to this day, in order to honor the um, magnitude and reverence of the holy other, Jewish people of faith, they refused to pronounce, to pronounce this name attributed to God in the scripture we read this morning. It's the name that just can't be repeated. Oh, it was once a year for generations repeated by the high priest, once a year in the temple. You've heard me tell a lot of Fred Craddock stories, and when Fred Craddock was a child, he said they would often have this kind of vocabulary time in the evening by the fire. His mother is one of these persons that um, believed that, um, in, in phonics. She said, if you can hear it, you can spell it. And, and Craddock says, she took me deep into words like oviparous and ovoviviparous and hypotenuse. And he says, I once could spell and I once could pronounce a satifatita. But he said, there was one name and all those nights around the fire she never put on the list. And the name was God. You see, we were just children, and she thought we needed a little time to grow into reverence, um, not to use that name and throw it around casually or glibly, that if you say the name of God, you, you draw your breath with care, reverence uh, for the holy other. Don't, don't underestimate how that plays its way out into our lives. They say that reverence for God is like a center tent pole. When, when you hallow the source of life, everything comes up with it, and you find yourself hallowing all other creatures, great and small. 
I think there's something else going on here. I am who I am. I am who I will be. I think this is a path to a deeper, a more profound kind of believing. After years of doing what I do and talking to people about faith or the loss of faith, I think there's a lot of people that just kind of give up on God because they park themselves by some first conception of God or some popular cultural notion of God um, that was full of kind of just magic and superstition. I was greatly influenced as a teenager by this classic little book, J.B. Phillips. The name of the book is Your God is Too Small, and, and he gently mocks all the ways that we kind of domesticate and whittle God down. He says we make God into a policeman or an errand boy or a genie. He said, when God is small, that will not meet the greatest joys or the greatest challenges of life. If you make God too small, God will soon be going the way of the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy. Now through the years, I have had this chance to talk to people who still have a longing for God, but they just want to know, how do I get to a more expansive, more enlivening kind of faith? And I say one way forward or one way back, however you want to see it, I think is through all, A-W-E, all. Einstein said, he who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. And I would add to that, he whose faith has no awe, that faith will soon wither on the vine. If at this moment that you're listening to me, if you're having a hard time finding your way into awe of God, just start with the last time you felt some awe, uh, that you marveled at something going on around you. I've told you before about that time. I'd gone out to San Francisco. Um, Sarah and Matthew, we were part of a wedding out there, and we had a chance to go north to San Francisco up into one of the Redwood Forest. When we got there, I wasn't feeling too great about it because, well, there were other people in the parking lot getting out of their cars, and there were some teenagers just kind of banging around and laughing and giggling and chasing each other, and I thought, oh, my. But then we all entered the forest, and... No one had to tell them to get quiet. Everyone got quiet. There was just like this holy stillness and quietness uh, over the whole place. These trees had been there for over 10,000 years and with infinite care, they were still growing. I know you've had moments like that. Um, they're hard to describe, you know, it's beyond words, beyond categories. Next time you have a moment like that, push on it a little bit. And ask yourself, well, how is it I was so wonderfully made that I can experience something called wonder? How is it that that which is around me would evoke such a sense of awe? And then push on that a little more and say, what kind of source of life could be behind this? Certainly one beyond all names, beyond all categories, unfathomably uncontainable. I am who I am. I am who I will be. You know what I hear in that? I hear something enticing me, inviting me for my faith to keep expanding, for it to keep growing. 
If, if God didn't come and punish my adversary, you see, then maybe God's not a policeman. You see what happens uh, when we start growing our faith? Uh, every letdown becomes a lesson and a lure. If, if God didn't come when I snapped my fingers, maybe well, God's not an errand boy or a genie. It was Barbara Bound Taylor who said that every time that um, her expectations of God were denied or disappointed, you know, she saw this as curtain pulled back after curtain, um, showing her what she had propped up in the place of God. Curtain after curtain gets pulled back. Every lesson, every letdown becomes a lesson and a lure to go deeper. God greater than my imagination, wiser than my wisdom, more dazzling than the universe. But the mystery doesn't stop there. You know. Mystery doesn't stop there. Yes, what we see in the scripture is God, uh, incomprehensible, <laughs> uncontainable, and yet perceptible, available. That's the other part of the mystery of this story. This great God who says, I am who I am, is sitting there provoking and calling and um, drawing Moses toward a, a way of life. And this God will not remain aloof and distant, but this is a God who stoops and seeks and searches and surrounds and speaks. And here, as we worship as Christians today, we believe that in fullness of time, the great I am came into an intense point of focus, and his name was Jesus. I think this is so intriguing. You're going to hear echoes of this story in the Jesus stories in the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus is having this repartee with the Pharisees, and they're pushing on him about his identity and what he claims to be. And he gets to one point, and he says, He misses, you miss the truth unless you see that I am he. Oh, but that's in the English translation, and the original is in the Greek, and the he is not there. It's just, I am. And, and that's what throws the Pharisees off. They almost go crazy when Jesus says this. Um, as Leander Keck, I think he said in his commentary on John, it was like this was opaque when they heard it. They couldn't see through it. All they could see was this man named Jesus claiming equality with God. But Keck goes on and he says, there's another way to view his answer. Not as opaque, you can't see through it, but as transparent. This is not Jesus claiming equality with God. Remember how it's, what it says in the little book of Philippians? Seeing that equality with God was not something to be grasped, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. This is not God speaking out of equality, and Jesus speaking out of equality, but intimacy. His being was so wrapped up in the being of God that when he says, I am, he's saying that this is the clear window of God glazed into our flesh and blood existence. None of us can ever walk around God and say, 
We've seen all there is to see, and we've got some pictures to show you. But can, we can say, through this window that God glazed into the world through Jesus, what God is like right here, right now, and how we live. Great moment toward the end of Jesus' life with the disciples. They could feel, they could feel the turning point. They knew his out, their hours and days were limited. And so Philip just raised his hand. He's a little impatient. He says, Jesus, we've had some really good times with you. You've given us some wonderful discussions and parables. But, you know, come on now. If you could just go on and show us God, then we would be satisfied. And, and Jesus just sits there and goes, oh, Philip, you mean you've been with me all these days and you haven't heard, you haven't seen? Don't you know that in the washing, in the feeding, in the helping, in the reconciling, in the transforming, in the loving. You saw God. You heard God. I really believe in many ways Jesus was as inscrutable, as mysterious as the one who sent him. How are you going to sum Jesus up in 25 words or less? You can't. I mean, think of all the descriptions of Jesus. Some called him Messiah, and some called him Lord, and some called him Savior. Some called him light and way and truth and vine and door. And it goes on and on. He was beyond all names in many ways. He was, too, was also beyond all categories. But he's enough like me. He's enough like me that he convinces me that I can have a relationship with God and that that relationship is deeply desired by God. He convinces me that relationship is grounded in unconditional, reconciling, peacemaking love. Last week, when we went through a week in which we remembered how deep the racial enmity is in this country, I was glad to have that window. I was glad to remember God who has brought peace into my own heart and soul and life, and a God who calls me to be about that. that that's what God is like, you know, that I am to be about shalom, peace with wholeness and justice and relationship for all. I was really thankful last week that I know a God who is um, in many ways so incomprehensible and yet His truth is so available. For years I, I have been moved by this passage that comes from Harry Emerson Fostick. I, I think it was part of one of his sermons at the Great Riverside Church and this is what he said. He said, recently I visited my, college, my cottage off um, this little island off the coast of Maine. And he said, I fell in love with the sea again. I don't know the whole sea, he said, but it's very great. I never sailed the tropical oceans where the Orinoco and the Amazon pour out their floodwaters through primeval forest. I have never watched the Antarctic Sea where today pioneers are pushing across the perilous path of the polar ice pack. Wide areas of the sea are unknown to me, but I know the sea. It has a near end, washes over my island. I can sit by it, 
I can bathe in it. I can sail over it. And I can be sung to sleep by the music of it. He said, God and God's vastness, um, we can only speak of that in symbolic, metaphorical terms. But God has a near end. I agree with that. The cosmic end. I marvel at that. The near end. I'm loved by that. I love and I know this is what calls me to follow day by day more nearly and dearly. If we can hold these together, the uncontainable, incomprehensible God, but the God who draws near. If we can do that, then I think that will leave us hoping and sighing and weeping and yearning and longing and praying. I think that will leave us as it did Moses, that we're having to take off our shoes because we're very sure we have found holy ground. Amen.